man now that now we're gonna go down the rabbit trail like three minutes before we start recording right what's up everybody thanks for tuning in to beam radio i did it on purpose because it's so valuable to our reader to have to debug my mistake bruce you totally muted yourself (laughs) (laughs) not for the first time on my day sophie Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. We are joined as always by our fabulous panel of hosts. We have with us today, Bruce Tate. Hi everybody from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey Bruce, we've got Lars Wickman. Hey from Svenska Västkusten. (laughs) Very nice, thanks. We've got Steven Nunez. What up from the Bronx? Oh, I see we're all doing these customized intros now. We are also joined by Josh Adams. Hi, Josh. Coming to you from the back of a conversion van in Jacksonville, Florida. I feel so much pressure to have an interesting intro now and all I'm going to do is say, and I'm Sophie from New York. Oh, so much less cool than everything that you guys did. Um, so we have got a couple of very special guests today, which I'll introduce in just a moment. We've got a great episode teed up for you guys. We're going to talk about teaching and evangelizing elixir and functional programming but before that we've got a few other things to chat about before we go any further i would love to hear a word from our sponsor bruce what's up with graxio we've been spending a lot of time on machine learning math and we've been doing it in flux the machine learning library or actually umbrella of libraries from the julia language and we're basically using that as an introduction into machine learning concepts and right after that we're going to close that out and beginning june 1st we're going to pick up ecto and so that ought to be a lot of fun very cool i'm excited for that ecto stuff Um, i know i learned a lot more about ecto working with you on some of the chapters in the live view book that dig into some ecto specifics although it's not you know, a super deep dive. It is a live view book, but I'm sure that whatever content you guys are putting out there is going to be really great. So before we move on to our main topic and introduce our special guest, we are going to dive into our process mailbox. And for that, I'm going to kick it over to Josh Adams. Take it away, Josh. Yeah. So CR Oldham asks, can you talk about tools and techniques for debugging Elixir applications? And then stuff goes bad, Erlang and Anger suggests that debuggers are less than useful and tracing is better on the Erlang VM. So we had a little discussion about this and kind of came to the same conclusion that there's kind of two things. There is, all right, so we do print, print debugging and, and tests, right? And, and then you read Erlang and Anger and you do what Fred says. So uh, an example of this is I had a production application that had a essentially an infinite loop, not exactly, but if enough of these processes started running, they consumed everything and just uh, performance went down. And I couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And finally I put just sampling in, so trace, trace sampling. And like 98% of the time it, it paused, it was stuck in something related to this process that shouldn't have been running. Anyway, so that was super helpful. That's an example of like, I don't know how I could have debugged it without a, without a trace. So that's my best answer is do what Fred says. Can't argue with that. I also feel like I'll shout out for Alex because if Alex was here, I'm sure he would bring up something about telemetry and Elixir observability. And I think that one of the things that we all enjoy about Elixir is how easy it is to instrument and observe. And I think that that makes debugging and just kind of knowing what's going on in your production system a lot easier. Distributed tracing, like you mentioned, is one example, Um, but it's so easy just out of the box to get such a clear picture of what's going on in your application. And I'll jump in also, I, I was able to spend just a little bit of time with Joe Armstrong and when, when he was debugging, he, he used a lot of print statements. And he said, one of the benefits of having a functional language is that the functions are much more predictable. And so prints work better in languages like Haskell, um, as, as Chris and Andre will show you, and, and in Elixir and Clojure, because the functions are more predictable. So you can get a lot further with a print. And I guess I'll jump in. Um, the, so I'll just give a shout out to Observer like the observer tool is incredible. So I, a lot of the systems that I've worked on, um, there was a benefit, you could actually log into the running system and either spin up an observer to see sort of like what's going on um, or send messages to your running process. And I think that just having that ability is unique to the beam, right? I can't imagine like jumping onto like a, like the same Rails process that is running my production server to see the state of my processes, introspect their state, right? I think the big thing is like part of the debugging tool is you, the developer, 
right? So you have an expectation of how things should work. So getting a holistic view of how the system is actually performing, right? Kind of similar to like Josh's point, this thing is like spinning up way too many processes. That's weird is a, a big thing that you can get by uh, just hopping on and either connecting via observer or actually logging onto the box and sending some messages and just, you know, sanity checking the system, which is again, an amazing thing you can do on the beam. Yeah, remote shells and releases are uh, highly valuable. All right, and with that, I think it's an excellent time to introduce our very special special guests for today. We are joined by Chris Miller and Andre Bryan, who are the hosts and dare I say stars of the YouTube channel Coding Cave, which we definitely recommend that our listeners check out. Uh, Chris and Andre, I've got a little intro for each of you, and then oh boy, do we have some questions for you guys. So uh, Chris is an associate software engineer at Corvus Insurance. Uh, he spends his time working a lot with Elixir and Elm. And in your free time, Chris, I'm told that you like to teach people how to use computational thinking and programming to solve problems. And that some of your favorite languages to work in are Haskell, Common List, and Elm, uh, all of which have definitely come up in discussion on the podcast before. And when you aren't talking code on Coding Cave, it turns out that we can find you watching videos about bonsai trees or practicing Chinese. Very cool, some varied interests there. And Andre, also a software engineer at Corvus Insurance, programming in Elixir and Elm. And when you're not working on Coding Cave or researching cryptocurrency and blockchain te technology, very cool, you enjoy basketball, watching anime, and playing video games. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so glad you guys could be here. So we've got lots of questions for you, kind of getting into the topic of teaching functional programming, talking about functional programming, a lot of the stuff that has come up on your YouTube channel before. But one of the questions that we like to ask of pretty much everybody that comes on the show and, and stuff that we've sort of shared about ourselves when we were first kicking off is, how did you first get into functional programming? How did you first get into Elixir? Uh, what was that journey like? Uh, I guess I can answer first. Uh, let's see. It was about maybe a year and a half ago that I first found out about functional programming, and it was completely by accident. Uh, at the time, I was working for a consulting company, so I was in a hotel room every week, and I would get very used to just coming in, having the YouTube play in the background, and I'm hearing this dude, Richard Feldman, he's talking about this language called Elm, and I'm like, what's Elm? And uh, he goes on, it's like, you can build these cool web apps and not have to use JavaScript. And I thought that was fantastic. I'm watching more of this and I'm looking at the syntax. I'm like, wow, that looks really clean. So I went on GitHub and was like, well, how do I get started with this Elm thing? What is Elm? And I was like, I want to know how it works because it's producing JavaScript somehow. So I look at the code and it's all Haskell. And I'm like, I've never heard of Haskell before. I don't know what this is. Uh, and I'm just floored and like, I have to dive into the functional programming. Um, so I start looking up Elm stuff. And while I'm at a client site, uh, one of the engineers there said, oh, you're looking up functional programming. You should check out Elixir. I ignored them. <laughs> so I'm uh, still working on Elm stuff. And then I realized, you know what? I want to go ahead and work with functional languages. So I start interviewing for companies that are using functional languages, mostly Elm. Uh, and then I interview for Corvus and they have Elm and Elixir and then Elixir comes back. And that's when I really first started getting into Elixir uh, and knowing about the beam and under like understanding Erlang even exists. It's really cool stuff. Uh, but that's pretty much how I got in by accident. <laughs> so you liked it enough to like go and get a whole new job so that you could work, you know, in Elm and with FP. What, yeah, what made you feel that way? It's a big change to make. I think uh, one of the, uh, my first, ex my, my second exposure, I should say, to programming was a very object-oriented approach uh, at Allegheny College, where me and Andre went to school. We both like learned about Java and, and using OOP principles to build software. And sometimes I, I felt that OOP kind of broke down at a certain point. It's like when you're put, trying to put everything into an object and you're, you're thinking in methods and, uh, it just felt very not intuitive to me. Uh, I didn't understand it as well. And when things got reasonably complex, I didn't understand how to do things anymore. It's like, well, these design patterns and things like that. I was like, well, that's not very useful. But the thing that's attracted to me about FP is at the end of the day, 
no matter how complex things get, everything's just a function uh, or a collection of functions. And you can go chase down those functions. Uh, like, like you all were saying earlier, put print states all the way, but because of referential transparency, you can trust those print statements most of the time. And you can really start thinking about your problem separate from the IO that poisons it. Yeah, that, that really resonates. I think um, you're saying like, you felt like OO really broke down for you. And I had a similar experience. I didn't really feel like it stopped making sense to me until I got into functional programming and I started reading about the actor model. And then I felt like I used to feel like OO really modeled the world in code. But then when I read about the actor model, I felt like, nope, just kidding. OO definitely doesn't model the world in code for me. The actor model really does. Uh, and that's really where I kind of started taking off. Yeah, that resonates with me also a lot. The idea that it's not just that object-oriented programming broke down for you, it broke down for a lot of people and new languages evolve for a reason. And normally it's because the last programming paradigm ran out of juice, right? That, that it wasn't enough to, to handle the problems that we're trying to throw at it. And that's, that's definitely true of the, the problems that we're trying to throw at distributed systems and um, systems with on hardware. And even the web systems are more streams of events than a request response. So yeah, yeah, I, I resonate with that a lot, Chris. Andre, what about you? So funny enough, Chris was the one that got me into Elixir and functional programming in general. Um, we talk on a regular basis about anything related to technology, mainly programming. And Chris always brings me stuff that he finds interesting. And I usually always check them out. And I was working at a, a company working in Java and Angular. And when Chris got the job at Course Insurance, he talked to me about um, Elixir and Elm. And I just looked into it and started working on trying to recreate Scrabble in Elixir, which was a big a very big pain that ended up falling through for me. Um, and happens. I took, yeah, then I took Dave Thomas's course on Elixir for Programmers. And that was really, really interesting. So I applied to Corporate Insurance and I've been working in it ever since. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you found that that problem, the hangman problem, because that's really similar to the, the Scrabble problem that you were trying to model, right? Yes, uh, just trying to figure out like how to model the board and figuring out if the, it's actually a word and creating a dictionary was pretty easy, but the actual logic was a little bit more complex than I thought. Stephen, are they us? I think I think this might be. <laughs> we're looking we're looking at a, a soul mirror. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think that that was a like very similar to our journey. I think. Uh, well, I mean, I think I found it. I fell in love with the concept because I felt that it was. It, it felt better. Right, the idea of like functions and returning state and sort of like this transformation idea uh, coupled with <laughs> coupled with uh, the actor model in it for concurrency that just made sense. I was like, this has all the ingredients that would make a really good soup. Um, it, it turned out to more of, to be more of like a sludge at first when I started writing Elixir, but eventually we refined it. Uh, and I think we got we got something tasty. So I, I think it's uh, it's interesting to sort of hear the the roadblocks that get you stuck um and then to see that like by changing your perspective a bit you can you can start to see oh i see why this was hard because i was looking at the at the wrong way not because the tools weren't there but because i was trying to apply the tools in a weird way yeah i like that Stephen, and, and especially the idea that um that you can look at the same problem in a different way in a different language and and have different results and also Andre, what you said really resonates with me because you actually looked at a problem in a different way and tried to implement Scrabble and, and you wound up wiped out pretty hard, right? And so oh, I think yeah. that there's, yeah, yeah. So I think that there's something to be said for the idea that functional programming is a bag full, uh, a bag full of tools and it's a smaller bag than a lot of languages, but the tools are sharper. <laughs> So it takes a little bit more skill to kind of wield them and keep all your digits. Yeah, I mean, there's that there's that phrase of like the most dangerous knife is a dull knife. Like I think you can do amazing things with a really sharp knife. 
you can also cut your fingers off. But I think that if you're, if you're versed in how to use the tools, and again, that's like good data modeling, right? A lot of the great layers that Bruce talks a lot about um, is the first key to get started and actually build things with these sharp knives confidently. Because right? you can work with sharp, knife, sharp knives and not always be afraid you're going to cut your fingers off. Maybe we could replace sharp knives with lambdas. That was great. <laughs> uh, so Chris and Andre, are either of you guys working on anything interesting with Elixir or Elm that you want to share a little bit about? I don't know if you want to talk about or if you can talk about anything going on at Corvus, any side projects, anything like that? Uh, I am currently building up a couple of things, um, one of which is using Elixir. Uh, and I, I guess that the thing that is, is sort of new to me and which FP has sort of allowed me to kind of get to is it's no longer about, I don't know how to code this thing. It's now the question of what do I code? Um, one of the side projects I'm working on is I'm helping out a friend kind of start up his business. He wants to create a platform for, um, health workers and people seeking health advice to meet and collaborate on there. So uh, it's a large web application and I know all the moving pieces and parts, but now that I actually am not afraid to code something, it's like, well, what do I actually need to code? Like, what is authentication? What is authorization? Like, how do you do caching and, and things like that? It's like, I'm beyond the point of, all right, this is the language that I have. I got to go stack overflow. Like I know how to do the things. I just don't know what to do. Uh, and it's been really interesting. It's like after FP, it's like, now that you know how to program, <laughs> what do you code? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I feel like I went through that um, twice, actually. I definitely went through that when I first learned how to code and I learned Ruby and I learned JavaScript and I got a job um more or less working as a rails developer and i kind of i feel like i had that journey and then i feel like i went through it all over again when i really got into elixir and using it uh, for more than just side projects we're using it professionally too i sort of went from and i think steven you kind of touched on this a little bit uh this point of like i actually don't quite know how to do this in elixir so i'm going to sort of throw everything i have at it and end up with like some spaghetti code slowly slowly to saying like okay i do know you know the right way to do this and i am seeing some of the patterns emerge so yeah it does kind of become this question of like what is the right way to do this how do i want to approach it as opposed to like how can i just get this working um and it's interesting i don't know that i've yet had that experience with other languages i feel like it happens when you're working in a language or a framework that actually speaks to you, if that doesn't sound too corny. Like if you're working in something that doesn't really ever click for you or feel comfortable, it's hard to get past that point of like, oh, how do I just get this working to, all right, how do I sort of make this beautiful? And how do I make this elegant? And how do I build something um, that like just feels really right? You know, I, I think something about what you said kind of, uh, maybe reveal some of the answer. I, I, I think some of the like FP languages like Clojure and uh, Haskell and Elixir, they, they're kind of bare bones. Like they don't abstract over a bunch of things uh, and hide away the details from you. It, it's like you have a bunch of these libraries that are functional pieces and you have to somehow clop them together to get that web application. Like um, uh, doing web development with Clojure, it's just, picking a bunch of these libraries that are out there. And it's not like a pre-rolled solution like Django or Flask. Um, so I, I, I think maybe that's part of it. It's like FP languages some more uh, stripped down bare bones simply because of the nature of how the systems work. Yeah, I think that touches on some of the challenges with sort of web frameworks in general, where if you learn Rails, you don't necessarily know Ruby very well, <laughs> or if you know how to build something with Django, it's not necessarily that you know how to like make a Python script from scratch because you've been generating code and you've been writing code that does nice meta programming for you. And I think there's a, always a balance to strike there. So Elixir leans heavily on Phoenix for web development. And Phoenix certainly sort of papers over some of the 
gnarlier stuff of web development for you, I don't feel like there's the same amount of magic. There's more stuff that's explicit, but it does also try to hide away some of the nasty, dirty IO that, that you mentioned. Uh, and I definitely had a microcosm of that experience of sort of, okay, now I can actually program a bit in this language. I ran into Elm recently and I ran into Elm hard. Uh, it was an existing code base someone else had made and they were long gone. Uh, and I didn't know Elm, but I needed to make some changes. I have not done like strictly typed or strongly typed or whatever you want to call it. Uh, FP, I've done mostly dynamic languages. Um, that was, that was, has been a ride. I, I've definitely been in a constant sense of discomfort for around two weeks just to get familiar with this code base, get comfortable with all the typing, hassle Josh, like, is it supposed to be this painful when you're using Elm? Uh, and no. <laughs> yeah, he was very clear. No, no, it should not be that painful. Something's wrong with this code base. But I think part of it was just like learning it, getting over that threshold because none of it was familiar to me besides sort of, yeah, this is a case statement. I recognize those. Um, but now I feel like, okay, yeah, I could write some Elm. It's fine. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm good at Elm. I haven't arrived with Elm, but. Yeah, that's really interesting, Lars. Uh, it, there's a couple of couple of concepts buried that I kind of want to bring out a little bit. The first one is this, this idea that when you have the right abstractions, it doesn't feel as much like magic, right? And so one of the things that all of our Phoenix classes, even the live view ones do, and, and even the live view book, we started with the, you know, the CRC, the, the constructor, reducer, converter with plugs, right? And, and even though those plugs are actually, they can be macros, well, they can be functions too. And it's just one, one function piped into the next. And, and when you have an abstraction that looks like that, then all of that paving over the potholes, those come in the form of functions. And that's, that's a different thing. Uh, that's, that's kind of a wonderful thing. But, but you said something else. The idea that there are certain problems that go with functional programming. And one of them is how do you line things up in terms, in, in a reliable way? And you can take a runtime approach to that, like like Elixir does with OTP. You can also take a type system approach to that like Haskell does with the type system. And Elm is very much in that school and say, hey, um, just you, you fix those mistakes by not making those mistakes and having the compiler back check you. And, and I think that each one of those approaches leads to a very different character of the language underneath. Yeah, in, in Elm, the answer to the question, how do I avoid runtime errors is, write a good compiler, buddy. <laughs> right, the type system. The type system is your protection. I, I think the, the crucial thing that I've learned about writing Elm is that when you get good at writing Elm, you, you don't actually write Elm. You let Elm tell you what to write. Ooh, I, I like that. Um, so there's a... There's a man named Edwin Brady. Um, what was his language? Is was it was it Idris? Um, yep, and so I remember doing um, just a couple of chapters or a chapter in in a book called Seven More Languages in Seven Weeks on Idris. And I I was really struggling through this this type system for a zipper, right? Um, like a, a zip format. So after I built the type system, it was time to write the code. And it was just an exercise in tab completion, right? It's like tab, 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 tab. Oh, am, am I done? Am I really done? Yeah. Dependently, <laughs> uh, dependent type systems are wonder, wondrous, beautiful things that I only partially understand. Uh, but the idea that I can write full mathematical proofs in my programming language and then use that to generate code is pretty bonkers. <laughs> if, you've, if you've never used type holes uh, in Elm to solve a problem, it's really, really fun. Like if you have a thing and you know, I have this on the left and I want to get to this on the right and I don't really know what that thing in the middle needs to be. So you just say it's A or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
compiler says, hey, you dummy, it's got to be this. And I go, oh, my goodness, that data model makes total sense. I'll do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm really big into program synthesis, uh, which is like uh, programs that write other programs and and how to make constrained properties that will spit out valid programs. But uh, one of the things um, from that space is uh, the idea that you could theoretically can use your type system along with another addition of like a relational programming system and get uh, you write a test case and then it produces the code for you uh, by using that beautiful type system. It's one of the, the frustrations I have when I'm working with a dynamically typed language is that I don't have the handrails of the types just to tell me where to go. Um, but also I don't have the option to build this like meta interpreter that writes code for me. Bummer. Yeah, that's definitely a different approach than I usually take to programming. And I think that's why I tend to stick to dynamic languages. It's like, from my experience with Elm, I definitely see the advantage of this type of compiler behavior. And I think for what Elm has chosen to do, it's amazingly powerful because it constrains one of the least sort of dependable and understandable languages out there and just builds a language for generating a safe variant of that because JavaScript is so undefined and so wildly behaved um, that I can really see that Elm solves a problem there. And the domain is sort of, uh, it's not entirely general purpose. You're trying to render a, a web page. It's a specific language for a specific task. And I found that super interesting. I think one of my unfortunate uh, parts of my experience there was that I was doing specifically IO. <laughs> so uh, I, I definitely ran into the some of the sharper edges of where Elm forces you to do the right thing in a very, very <laughs> explicit way. So lots of JSON encoding and decoding. And that's... I found it slightly painful because you can't you can't uh, sort of dynamically handle that and do it just easily. Yeah, I feel like I want someone to have a smoother on-ramp to that bit of Elm than having that be like the first thing they do in an existing established system that's doing it wrong. Yeah, so I was just talking with a coworker the other day. It's like, I love Elm, but the amount of time it takes me to get a post request out is painful. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that that's kind of part of the territory, right? Is that you get to pay now or you get to pay later, and it turns out that when you pay later, the it's it's not it's not just a one-time purchase; it's a subscription, right? It's that 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 those loose connections um, are a lot easier to make, um, but your your costs are going to be runtime costs, right? And that's this this stuff might break, right? Yeah, I think that's an interesting trade-off, actually. And I've, I've spoken to some Haskell developers that have started looking very hard and some have taken the leap into using Elixir and Phoenix for specifically web development. Because as far as I understand, sort of web framework maturity on the Haskell side is, is a bit of a conversation. <laughs> um, it's something I've been looking into um, maybe for the past month or so just how do you do web development in haskell and it's possible i i think that you really have to know what you're doing though it's not the type of thing you just go into uh without a haskell background <laughs> like <there's, laughs> you need to um, there's like a lot of complexity with some of the libraries but you can get something very simple using uh scotty or spock to roll up a server and then um you use the HTML templating library like Lucid to, to get basic things going, but it's possible. I never played with Servant, but I thought it looked really interesting. On Servant is that Haskell type magic yeah, uh, that allows you to express your API all in the types. And that's something I have touched very briefly and then said, this is too complex for me. <laughs> yeah. So. What, I, what I'll theorize is what Bruce said about paying all upfront or over time and at runtime as a subscription. I wonder if the reason why there's not a sort of clear 
mature framework or that's the impression I've gotten from Haskell people. I don't know the space, but that's the impression I have had. Might be that the cost, <laughs> the upfront cost of trying to upfront solve a web development framework, a web framework is actually immense. <laughs> While if you can shove some of that complexity off to sort of, eh, we'll, we'll handle that part dynamically. That, that's a bit of a hand wavy bit or we do some of that with dynamic magic that has weirder corners that isn't totally explicit, isn't totally mapped out. I wonder if that's uh, that's sort of why it's more achievable in a dynamic language and why why it might not there might not be an entirely mature solution in in that space. So I I definitely think so, and and I but I do think that that one of the things that systems like LiveView are doing, they're, they're essentially opening up a lot of space where we could be using a lot more, a lot more type security. And, and, and a good example of that is the Surface, um, the Surface API that we're starting to see where you could express these HTML-like components that uh, where every property, every attribute, if you will, gets passed through and those are, effectively type checked in a rudimentary way because Elixir doesn't really have the um, the tools to do those type checks under the under the hood. So I wonder if we're going to find kind of if we're going to pass the the place where this request response notion of the web, it's it's a little bit overkill to um, to say, okay, this is a this is a string and these are composers and you know, all, all the different pieces that you need to build in a Haskell-like system. But when that becomes a string, a stream of events, that's a very different proposition. And then when you start to construct things with components, that's different still. And, and then not just simple types, but complex types of types become much more important to the overall ecosystem. So we've talked so a lot about Elm. Uh, and I do want to dig in a little bit more to Haskell since, Chris, I know you've been doing some thinking and even some talking on the topic. But before we move on to that, I would love to hear from you guys. Your YouTube channel, Coding Cave, has a decent amount of Elm content. So, yeah, Andre, Chris, tell us a little bit more about Coding Cave. Why did you start it? About a year ago, I think we just decided to start a YouTube channel. I don't know, Andre, do you actually remember? <laughs> So we started by wanting to drop a YouTube channel together because we have a lot of conversations about coding or just technology. Like we had a one hour long back and forth conversation at like 11 o'clock at night about boot camps versus college versus self um, being self-taught being self-taught programmers. Our partners were both like, "Hey, you guys should have like drop a video about that." And we're like, "Oh, we already had a conversation." Like it. It is what it is. And then we're like, oh, we'll just start a YouTube channel. And we started making videos and we wanted it to be just someone different. We know a lot of people that look like us aren't really out there teaching or programming. A lot of them are software engineers, but a lot of them that we've seen on YouTube aren't actively teaching programming. So we felt like we wanted to be different. And we just like, okay, we'll drop some videos. And Chris is very good at Elm and I'm learning it actively and working in it professionally. So we're like, hey, we could use this to keep learning and teaching as well. So that's how we started just making videos. Yeah, I, I think at first we were just thinking we'll do stuff that teaches computation. Our first videos, like uh, what is abstraction? Uh, and, and then we kind of started figuring out we could just do Elm stuff. But I think something has to be said about content that you yourself are looking for that you have to produce to find like with our continuation passing style uh video and haskell it's like i want to know about cps i go on youtube to look for things and i don't really see a lot of videos on cps let's make one <laughs> and we're actually trying to ramp up our content to be more ed like advanced to be constantly trying to learn new things and another way to help reinforce what we're learning is making a video about it. So we're like, why not? I think that's really good advice. I think figuring out where there's a need and then like creating content for it is a really good strategy. Um, 
for, for two reasons. One is to learn like a big thing, big part of learning is being able to like digest something and nothing helps you in my opinion, digest something than teaching it to someone else. I, I notice I do this, like I'll, I'll be reading something and then I'll kind of imagine myself teaching it to someone else and it helps me learn it faster. Um, Cause then I have to kind of like dig into the part, I don't understand this part or this part isn't clear. Let me find another source. Um, but it's also like really good advice for the community. Um, I think that the community benefits a lot when we have, um, there are holes we all know about that we either muscled through, right? Enough to get it done, but not enough to teach it. That if we did put that gate, I think all of these communities would be way better off for it, right? We're talking about the difficulties of like picking up Elm or running into this problem, typing. And at some point you were a noob, right? Either you came from like a dynamic OO language and you came into like a world of typing um, or you came into it. There was a point where something clicked and to catch that magic in a bottle and then post it on YouTube, I guess, um, is, is something that I think is really admirable. So thanks for that. And especially YouTube, right? Where, where you could actually look over somebody's shoulder as they're coding or where you capture visuals. And you know, I, I really think that you know, Maggie drug me kicking and screaming into video for Groxio because it is a lot of work and you guys do a beautiful job of editing, by the way, but, but it, it provides so much more value I think for programmers, I'd love to see more content like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should probably get into sort of showing people how to code on this podcast, just actually going like deep into syntax and talking about slashes. I think that would that would be great audio content. Yeah, there's a there's a definite challenge trying to <laughs> trying to do that sort of thing in audio, while you can definitely do it in video, and it has traditionally been done a lot through text just blog posts and uh, tutorials. And I think there's there's a lot of people going to video these days to learn this stuff. That was not an option when I started. So I sort of have a text habit. But where, where would you start someone with Elm? Uh, I think first with Elm, I'd start with just what are values. Uh, I would talk about the notion that things in this language aren't uh, run, they're evaluated. So I would I would start people with like, these are the values you can use. And then I would talk about the model view controller uh, system that Elm kind of uses. And then after that, I would tell them to try to build something, uh, probably something simple at first, like a counter, like to do app type thing. To do app might actually be too much, but a counter and, and then try to build something else and just add more to your application. Elm made sense for me uh, when I was trying to build a Sudoku solver. Uh, that's when everything finally clicked. It's like, oh, okay, I'm doing constant transformations over this model state. Uh, and then I have these messages that can fire off. Uh, after you get the, the basic uh, MVC thing, then I would say move on to learning how to deal with like commands and messages. So uh, IO stuff. So I wonder how so the, there was a there was a point where it, it made all the sense in the world to to pair Phoenix channels with with Elm because there was just the stream of events, right? I wonder how the calculus changes with LiveView. Have you worked with LiveView yet, Chris? I have not worked with LiveView yet, no. But it's very much I suggest a, this great book on the topic. No, just kidding. <laughs> there you go. Promotion. But it's very much the same thing, right? It's, it's you have this this stream of events from a process mailbox, and they come in and they modify the state, and then there's a render based on that state, and it just it just sounds familiar, right? Because it's it, Elm did that better than anybody else. Um, so I wonder what the connection between Elixir and Elm is going to look like over time. You know, you have me curious. I might have to look at live view later on today. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. I, I think you're going to enjoy building web apps with it. I think a lot of what you've been talking about, uh, kind of the challenges around assembling a web application from uh, some of these other frameworks, I think LiveView has a really nice answer for. So I'll be curious to, to hear your experience with it. But you seem to have a very specific answer to how you would teach Elm. And I know you do tutoring and mentoring of folks who are learning functional programming. Is Elm one of the languages that y'all are working with or yeah tell us a little bit about that 
Uh, so when I start teaching someone to program, I usually have like a very particular focus in mind and it's all generally based on that individual and what they're trying to do. Uh, right now, I guess I am handling like six or seven people that I've been teaching. Um, two or three of them wanted to actually get jobs. So uh, for that, I... I decided not to do anything fancy and just taught them JavaScript and Python because it's those are the languages hiring uh, like broadly. Um, but I, I do try to go about teaching any language that I start with, with just breaking it down to functions. Um, and I, I go over the notion of a function. You have inputs and you have outputs and whatever language it is, because if we're talking about data science, I'm probably teaching Python. But if I can teach and convey the, uh, the concept of a function to someone, uh, then I just start from there. It's like functions and build on other functions. And that's thing you know, you have an application that's just a giant function that's handling these requests. Um, but everything is, I, I try to go function-based, which is kind of pure, uh, but I don't generally introduce functional languages because it just won't be immediately applicable uh, most of the time to what they're trying to do. I think that's a very interesting approach because I think that if you can do mostly functions, in Python, you can get very, very far. Same with JavaScript, same with almost any language aside from the ones that force you to define a class to get anything right. done. Um, and it applies across FP and OOP in the sense that like there are functions in both generally, unless they require you to define a class. Uh, so hey, even Java yeah. has lambdas now. Uh, I, I think uh, that's also sort of where I started with programming. I just, I was just writing functions. I didn't have a need for OOP uh, and sort of doing PHP at the very beginning there. It's, you just need some functions to be able to reuse some code. And while doing that in Python, you might not want to go into sort of recursion uh, and self self recursing functions. But then you have trivial loops instead, uh, which which is nice. And then you can always go deeper in either language, but learning about sort of variables and values and functions, I think that's that's what you need to grok to actually get started with programming. And the rest, yeah. the rest is advanced. I, I mean, um, reading through the little schemer uh, and how they build up sort of this, not a little schema, I'm sorry, I got the books confused. Uh, structures and interpretations of computer programs. There's one chapter when you have a function that has a state inside of it and you have methods. And I was like, wait a second, that's OOP, but we're just talking functions here. And after I realized that, uh, I was like, well, functions are the, uh, the mother of all abstractions here. Uh, and if you have a language that you can work with higher order functions, then I can pretty much teach you everything I can do in Haskell in that language. Because functions give you, if you have higher order functions and functions, you have continuations. Continuations can give you all types of control flow structures. So you can really just learn about functions. I feel like a more computer science education was just about functions. We'd all be better off. Yeah, I was saying you, you made me jealous hearing that, like I taught for years taught Ruby and JavaScript in a very like OO focused lens. And just the, the fact that you're like, all right, you get enough of the basics. Let's start building this other weird abstraction with instance variables. And like you pass self to this object that calls a bunch of stuff on it. Things change and that's just normal and fine. And have you heard about this thing called class instance variables? Oh boy, I'm gonna go cry now. Um, but yeah, like I, I love the idea of, uh, that's what I was saying, like it's so important to make these things uh, so uh, more approachable because I think like the the fact of the matter is that it's today easier to get into as a beginning developer Ruby Python than it is to get into Elixir. Um, I think that just the on ramp to those things are like thousands of blogs written by you know thousands of bootcamp students on like what a string is and how iteration works. And I think that there's a lot of work that we could do to make that 
a very uh, an actual option for people. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why like I'm so pumped to see the Coding Cave YouTube channel and you know happy to hear what you guys described, which is that we just wanted more resources like this to exist, so we went out and made one. Um, and that's also what we would tell our students a lot um, at Flatiron. Well, first of all, we would require them to write blog posts, so wasn't like optional or our, our idea that we would tell them to do this. But one thing that I would always try to tell students who would feel like, oh, I don't have anything to write about. I don't, I'm not solving a hard enough problem. It's not gonna be interesting. It's really just as simple as like, did you have a bad day because you couldn't figure out X thing? And that thing could be as simple as string interpolation because you're new to it. You know, that's what you need to write about. Um, and seeing more and more resources like that from beginners in the Elixir space is something I really wanna see. So I think a final question I have for, for you guys, Andre and Chris, what kind of resources do you guys wanna see? What do you wish more people were putting out in the Elixir community or functional programming community more generally? How can we get more people involved? I think when I first got into Elixir, I, I found that a lot of the good resources were behind paywalls of some sort. Uh, so like the, the Dave Thomas course, for instance, I don't remember what it was, but it's like, these resources should be free. I really, uh, enjoy the Elixir school, like, um, blog posts that go through different things, but I would love if someone in the community, uh, took a real world app, like with Phoenix or something and just made a couple of videos, like breaking down each part of that, um, in, in Elixir. Because uh, I, I would find that really useful. Maybe I'll do that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's always like my sneaky reply to whatever you were going to answer. I was just going to say like, oh, you should, you should go to that. Obviously, it's not that easy, but very interesting to hear what your thoughts are. Uh, what about you, Andre? Any ideas on that topic? When I was first starting, I did do the Dave Thomas course, and I think it was like $20 or $30. So it wasn't that bad. But like Chris said, like YouTube has so much content out there. And a lot of people can get on there and make videos. And I did go to Elixir school and I did go to documentation, but something, I think the more people who create stuff, kind of like you said, and reiterate it in different ways, some people will understand it one way and some people won't understand it, but the more that's out there, the more resources people have, I think that'll be the best thing. So being able to see it in different ways and find the way that clicks for you will be the best thing, so. Yeah, thank you for that. I totally agree, right? Like everybody learns differently. So the best way to cover all those bases is just for more people, everyone, everywhere to be producing stuff, whether it's YouTube videos or blog posts or books, what have you. Um, that's kind of my general shout out to our listeners. Do more I, stuff in Elixir and write about it and tell the world so that we can all learn from you. Yeah. I also think that one other thing I really appreciate in resources is when they leave the mistakes in. Well, it's making me feel a lot better because we've gotten uh, a fair amount of, uh, you know, people like submitting errata, errata for the live view book. So like little code things that I've been fixing, but really what you're saying is I did it on purpose because it's so valuable to our reader to have to debug my mistakes. Perfect, I love it. Um, no, but I do love hearing people talk about, write about and just share what they struggled with and what went wrong and what mistakes they made. And I think that that's as valuable part of the learning process um, as just showing like a perfect finished product. And I think that that's something that I try to keep in mind as a teacher. And I think people used to ask me, um, you know, aren't you nervous? Like you have to stand up there in front of a classroom, you know, back in the day of people learning in person and like, you know, give a lecture or answer questions. And yeah, sure, of course it's a little nerve wracking, but I think what ultimately kind of helped me do that time and again was really not feeling like I always had to know the answer. Eventually getting to this point where I would feel comfortable saying like, I don't know, let's figure it out together. And here's how I would go about figuring this out. Um, I think that that's something that I've really benefited from as a student and just, you know, as a person in the world. And I hope that that's something that our students have benefited from, but yeah, showing the mistakes and getting confused is really, really helpful to see. And that's something we definitely plan on doing with our videos as well and not making them perfect where we come up with the final product. Like moving forward when we work on more advanced stuff where we usually have to struggle to like figure out the answer. Like we'll definitely keep a good amount of mistakes and so let people know that you don't actually have to be perfect. Like it's normal to struggle and go through the process of trying to figure something out. 
Yeah, you guys are great editors. I mean, re really, really good editors. And and so I think that that's one of the one of the big jumps that we made at Groxio. We started moving more to a live coding type example, and um, rather than solve the same problem four times and then live code it, I would try to solve problems that were more or less fresh in my head. And so that there would be some kind of um, forward tracks and back tracks so that people could see first that I'm not a bad person because I didn't get right things right the first time. That's how the world works for, for programmers. And second, that there are tools that all of us use to solve problems and they're not generally ultra sophisticated debugging tools and techniques. They're, they're really basic. And, and third, that, that it, is, it is part of the whole programmer ethos to be able to, you know, I hate my life, I hate my life, I love my, I love programming, right? It's like, um, you know, I, the first time I saw that, that shirt in, in our high school coding club, I just did a backflip, right? Uh, I hate bugs, I hate bugs, I hate bugs, I love programming. It was a, a great shirt. And I think that more of the resources have to capture that mentality um, in order to, to make us ultimately successful. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the biggest mistake is to feel like you shouldn't be making mistakes. And if that's your mindset, then you're actually going to hate being a programmer because like 90% of our time is spent wondering why the hell this isn't working and trying like 10 different things and running the test or trying to figure out what's going on. And then finally, you know, you get to the bottom of a bug. And I think that's another thing is that I would try to sort of give to my students is this idea that that feeling of being frustrated and lost is actually like, that's a beautiful place to be because that's where the breakthroughs come from. And if you start to get comfortable there, and if you start seeking out that feeling of discomfort, then yeah, then this is kind of the, the place for you to be. This is the job for you. Um, anyway, I won't keep you guys too long on that note. I want to just give one last thanks to our sponsor, Graxio, which is career fuel for programmers. Check them out for some great Julia content, some Ecto content coming up. And thank you so much, Andre and Chris. It was so great talking to you guys. Uh, we'll put links to Coding Cave and some of the other stuff that we chatted about today in the show notes. And yeah, you guys are awesome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's really appreciate it. I'm going to be buzzing all week over some of the things we were talking about, Chris. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> so nice. You guys are so lucky that you still get to work together and hang out and build stuff. That's so fun. Thanks to Chris. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Dragging you, kicking and screaming into FP. Was that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the easiest transition. Still isn't, but I mean, I'm working on yeah. it. Yeah. Working on it. There.